From regular expenses to occasional splurges, there's a lot to buy. Why not get cash back every time you spend? With the PenFed Power Cash Rewards Card, you get cash back on every purchase. That's everywhere, every time you use it. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Visit PenFed.org slash PowerCash to apply. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome back, listener. How are you doing? I'm glad you had a good week. My name is Aaron Richmond, and of course you're listening to Aaron's Opinion, the podcast for blind people, where we talk about critical issues in the blindness community. Yeah, welcome back, everybody, on a very rainy Sunday night for me, wherever in the universe I am. And uh, by the way, before we get going, always just have to say that this episode of Aaron's Opinion is copywritten by Aaron Richmond and Aaron's Opinion. Thank you. Aaron's Opinion can be heard almost anywhere you get a podcast. From Apple to Spotify to Spreaker, you name it, we're probably there. Follow us on Twitter, follow on Facebook, follow us on YouTube. Even consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. I would appreciate the support. And ladies and ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to name drop. I know you'd be fine with it out there at home, at home. I know you'd be fine with it, but I'm just not going to. Um, and we both at home know why. It's a long story. But you at home, you asked me to include the blind history lady on Aaron's opinion. Well, she's right here. How are you? I'm doing just great. So, you know, one of the uh, really interesting things that you said was that you to to reiterate what you do is that you just love history and you love writing about the as you call it our our ancestors kind of in the blindness community from around the world so i'm not terribly familiar with your with your writing but you have a blog you do a lot why don't you tell us what you do well actually i never liked history i never did well in school and history never appealed to me because it didn't say anything to me. It didn't tie me in. And I grew up in the blind community in Minnesota. My mother had gone to the North Dakota School for the Blind. I grew up knowing the piano tuners and the salesmen and the rug weavers and the blind guys who did the traditional stereotypical blind job. And by the time I hit my late teens, early 20s, I must say I was embarrassed by them and felt they, you know, how, how come they weren't trying harder? How come they didn't try to have a better life for themselves? And then um, several years later, I was given a task to clean out the old files in the NFB of Minnesota's offices as we were moving from a large building to small office space, comparatively small anyway. And we had to get rid of a whole bunch of junk. I was told that because I knew all the old timers, I would know what was important and what wasn't. I started to go through the files and read a little bit here, read a little bit there throw a bunch of stuff out, which I totally regret to this very day now. But I started to read a letter from the 1920s, the early 1920s, because the National Federation of the Blind of Minnesota was actually before 
uh, in the 1920s called the Minnesota Organization of the Blind. It was the mob. And um, I started to read this letter from one of our members talking about meeting with our blind congressman. And I thought I knew all, everything, you know, young people do. They know everything about everything. How come I did not know that Minnesota had a blind congressman and who was he? They didn't even give his name in the letter. So I copied it, put it aside. And I started to pay more attention to the material I was looking at. And if it wasn't something that was going to be kept in the files and I thought it had something in it that was of importance, I'd put it aside or I'd make a copy and put it aside. And I started to investigate who the blind senator was from Minnesota. I asked around. Nobody knew there was a blind senator from Minnesota. Everybody knew about Thomas Pryor Gore, the blind U.S. senator. But nobody knew about any blind congressman or senator from Minnesota. So I found out all about um, Thomas David Shaw, who was a blind congressman from Minnesota from 1914 to 19. Uh, 24 wow. when he wow. became the U.S. Senator from Minnesota from 1925 till he was uh, run down in 1935 by a hit and run driver that his family swears was hired by the mafia end of the DFL to kill him. And looking back, That's they bizarre. may actually have, well, they may actually have some proof on their side. If today we were to investigate that crime, um, they're, their family may have some legitimate reasons. So this all surprised me. And I just started to collect stories, magazine articles, books, and things like that. Um, then uh, after many years of collecting all this stuff, my husband kind of said, you know, this is kind of taking over the den. You either got to do something with this stuff or you have got to get rid of it. So I started to look at what I had. I had been writing, you know, those the little gossip columns and newsletters and things like that, articles in blindness um, magazines. But I started to pull a bunch of that together, and uh, I wrote a couple of articles. One got published in the Iowa History Journal. But by this time, I was also getting involved in genealogy. I I can't say I'm an expert genealogist, but I think I'm a little bit better than the average uh, genealogist out there. I got involved in that in about 2000. And when I would get stumped on my family history, I would say, you know what, I wonder, and I would pull out well, one of the old news articles and take the genealogy uh, approach to researching some of these blind people. And I have just been fascinated by what I call our blind ancestors. So I consider Thomas David Shaw to be the root of our family tree, if you will, uh, for me anyway. And uh, like I said, I, I became a, a genealogist. I've taken many genealogy classes, um, use a lot of the same uh, tools that a genealogist would use. And as a blind person, I found it really easy to slide into some of those roles because so much in, if you're really going to go out there and 
do your family tree, if you're going to be a genealogist, people think, oh, you just go on Ancestry.com and you blah, 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 and you, do you know that's just the very beginning. <laughs> One of the things that we learned is that you need to learn how to use people across the country and other genealogy clubs and organizations to help you go to the county courthouse because you don't want to travel there. It's too expensive to go and look for one piece of evidence, if you will. Um, but how to use people to find what you're looking for. And I have taken that approach with several of the people that I research. Um, I also have contacted the descendants of some of the people that I research. Many cases, it's a distant niece or a distant nephew because not a lot of our blind ancestors got married and had children. They were strongly discouraged from doing that, either that their blindness may be hereditary or that a blind person wasn't capable of being a parent, that you really shouldn't do that. You needed somebody to take care of you, go marry a sighted person. There was even some of that in my own family um, where, you know, go find a nice sighted guy, go to college, get your MRS degree, you know. Um, these, these people have become very inspirational to me when I am looking at the times that they lived in and the obstacles they had to overcome or that they tried things that today many blind people would be scared to try and later on somebody would interview them and say, now what made you think that as a blind person you could do that? And they would say, well, nobody told me I couldn't. And I, I find that to be kind of fascinating, the attitudes that some of these people have had and how, to me, inspirational it, it is. The struggles that they've had to go through and, and come out on top, the courage that they had, um, would, did, did they all become rich and famous? Of course not, otherwise we would be hearing about them. But we have had famous blind people that history doesn't tell us about, such as Thomas David Shaw, who was in the U.S. Congress and then the U.S. Senate for 20 plus years. Uh, there's been other blind people that have been in Congress. Um, we've had a blind man who was in Congress in the 1930s to 1940. That was the last time a blind person served in Congress. And when Thomas Pryor Gore left the Senate, that was the last time we had a, a blind U.S. Senator. When I look at how many blind people ran for political office in 1880, 1890, 1900, 1920, 1950. And then about 1950, you start why is that? Well, I think we could debate that back and forth many ways. Politics have definitely changed and you need a lot of money behind you. Blind people just don't have 
those most blind people do not have those kinds of connections. Um, so that is kind of why I got started and why I keep doing it is because these people have, like I said, become my ancestors. We have a rich history. We should know that. We are constantly, as blind people, being told, no one's ever done that before. I don't know that you could do it. I don't know how a blind person could do that. If blind, if uh, counselors, rehabilitation professionals, uh, social workers were to take a course on what disabled people have done in the past, not look at the types of medical conditions that we have or whether or not we learned Braille at age four or seven or what have you, but what happened after you left the school for the blind? What happened after you left the rehabilitation program? What did you, what did you do? What did you accomplish? We have a rich history, but we don't teach it to anybody. Um, the teachers of the blind, they don't teach it. They don't encourage blind children to reach for the stars because they don't know of anybody that's done something out of the ordinary before. And what if we had teachers who knew that blind people have been presidents of banks, that blind people have invented cruise control, that blind people have uh, invented the window that comes in for easy cleaning? What a difference that might make in a child's life to be something like that. You know, let me let me just plug in. It was perfect, perfect timing. My microphone is telling me that it would like to be plugged in. And then I have a lot of things to say. Hold on. Okay. First thing I have to say is number one, history is my favorite topic. I'm a teacher. I work online teaching English as a second language to students who live all over the world. I work for Company X. Um, that's what I call the company, let's say. Okay. And um, as, as a teacher and as someone who loves history, all I can say is from the bottom of my heart, amen. I completely, completely support you in research, doing all of this research and compiling all of this information to educate the world about this. Because until you said that name of, the, of those people, the Thomas David Shawl and, and these people, I had never heard of these people before. And I'm a young person, I'm a young guy, I'm 29 years old. I have never heard of that person in my life. And I'm so glad that I have. So glad that you came in today just to tell that story because it's so, 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 so important. And I think it really, one of the most interesting points that you've made about this whole thing that really is a real slap in the face. Um, and it, it should be, it should be a real, a real kick in the rear end, or as I say on this explicit podcast, it really should be a kick in the ass to all of you blind people listening all over the world to, to get up and start being productive and start living the life you want and start getting an education and just going about your business. 
because the fact that there's a drop as you as you as you noted in your data that there was a drop of blind people participating at the political level in the 1950s well as a matter of fact in the 1950s that's when blind people started to be able to get some certain jobs that blind people do not do anymore such as piano tuning and things like that. And now, of course, there's going to be a comment in the audience. Well, I'm a piano tuner. Well, great, cool. But, you know, nowadays, piano tuning, um, there were several other trades um, that blind people did in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that are just not, just not practiced anymore. And I think what happened was, as the country, you know, started to modernize, you know, after we went through the world wars, you know, conflict in Korea, all of that. I think that technology in our country advanced to a point even back then, where blind people felt that they needed that they did not need to try as hard as they might have had in the early 20th century. And I don't know, that's just my interpretation of that. I also think that it's important to only set realistic goals. I'm not saying that we shouldn't reach for the stars. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, absolutely right, Peggy, we should. But it's equally important to only invest time. And this is my opinion. It's only important to invest time in things that are realistic and are truly going to be the most productive and most effective goals for us to follow. So there is a difference between kind of floundering when you reach for the stars and realistically reaching for the stars. And I, I'm absolutely fascinated by your research. Um, and you have a magnificent speaking voice for podcasting. How many other podcasters have you have reached out to you for your historical knowledge? That's what I want Not to know. Not near enough. I need to, I need to reach out to many, many more and get on uh, more programs to talk about this. Um, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned about being realistic about reaching out. Indeed. And in that, you know, when you're talking about the people from like 1880, 1900, even through the 1920s, they when they hit the, the lowest level in their life, there was no welfare system that, that would be a, a safety net. There was no rehabilitation program, especially if you went blind after the age of say 18, 21 or whatever. Uh, if you did get any kind of county or city assistance, your name was put in the paper and it shamed your family and that you many times had to make a choice. Do I try and live on my own and get a little bit of support from the community or do I stay at home and not alienate my family? But these people also faced the, the reality that they would have to go to the poorhouse or an asylum and I'm not talking an asylum for the blind, because especially by the 1880s, if they had asylum attached to it, they were probably a school for the blind. Now, there were I, homes for elderly blind people, but not mo much for women. Women ended up going into asylums for the mentally ill. Um, and, the that's, life and that's a whole, that's a whole other episode about that mess. Oh so. my gosh. And if you went into a poor farm, 
um, I've studied a few of the poor farms where the police kind of just locked you in at night and honey, you're on your own. And if you did not have somebody to watch your back, you didn't get any sleep. You didn't come out with your shoes the next day. If you were a woman, um, you may not come out alive the next day. Uh, so so going to the poor farm was desperation. Indeed. indeed. I, I, so I think, I think some of our younger, well, by the way, this is only for adults, but I mean, some of the people my age who maybe you're not so familiar with poor farm and can, can you maybe define some of these terms you're using? Because a lot of younger people are not remotely as connected with history as I am. So they wouldn't really know about this. Can you give a brief history lesson on what you mean by all those terms you just used, please? Okay. Yeah. You know, that's a very good point. Um, and I sometimes forget that the poor farms ranged from a, walled off section of land, you might say, um, fenced in, what have you, where the people who were indigent um, were just put there by the city and, you know, stay off our streets. We don't want you begging. You can't beg here. You, if, if you don't have a place to stay, go stay over there and stay out of our way. Uh, or the poor farm was literally a farm that you might be sent to sometimes by the courts, sometimes by the welfare system or social work system or whatever there was, uh, where you would go and work off whatever your debt was to the community until that debt was paid or until you could find a job to get off of the poor farm. So you would be doing farm chores, farm labor. Um, It could vary from anything um, like that. There was a place in Delaware that was a house that took in uh, uh, people who had no place else to go. And it was probably a very small, what we would consider today a small house. It was a three-bedroom home in 1900. And you know, back then, bedrooms were about eight by ten in many of the houses yeah and i mean a three a three bedroom in 1900 that would be from the perspective of a blind person of that era that that would be a mansion that would be a big scary mansion right and from, they from would that put perspective and in right. delaware there was over 60 people in one of those homes so imagine having a home Ooh, that's la. about maybe 1200 feet Ooh, la, la. Be pushing in my in my second language of French, we say "ooh la la" to that, and that's this is. Now, I'm I I mean, you're a hundred percent correct. How did you How did you come to gain these figures? I think that's important. Um, like I said, I have um, learned a lot about researching as a genealogist, and have put that skill into my research. I have found newspaper articles. I have found um, letters. Um, let's just take Delaware and the house that we're talking about where there were 60 people in this three bedroom house. The agency for the blind had just been developed by a blind person. And basically it was a workshop that could house up to 12 people who could live there and then work in this workshop, making brooms or mops. They had a couple of people, uh, one they hired, one was probably unpaid for the first couple of years that went around to every community looking for blind people to come to this workshop and make brooms. 
And that's where they found this guy who was about 30 years old. And he was sitting in a chair. And he didn't talk to people. Uh, he just sort of sat there. Now, he had a very traumatic childhood as well. Uh, he went blind in his early 20s. But he had been orphaned somehow. Uh, we don't really know how he had been orphaned. But the county placed him at a farm to uh, basically a, an adoption, if you will. They were his custodial guardians. But he had to work. He didn't go to school. He had to work the farm. Um, and he had a farming accident uh, in his 20s. And he was just left on his own. So the uh, worker from the Commission for the Blind, it was called that in Delaware at the time, found him, brought him to the broom shop. They really weren't sure because he wasn't, he had no spirit. He wasn't communicative. They just didn't know if he was going to work out. He blossomed at the broom shop. He, he finally found out he could do something. He, he, they talk about him in the annual report. They talk about him in some of the letters about how he didn't realize he could use his hands, how he could use the skills that he had on the farm, use them as a blind person. Then he made the newspapers again about a year before he died. He only lived to about 34, 35 years old. Um, he was in the workshop. And they uh, sent him down to the basement to get more broom corn. Broom corn is the straw that you use to make the to make the bottom part of the broom. And he went down the, the stairs. Do you mean the do you mean the 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 the, br the brush part? You mean the brush part? The, okay, the, the bristles, bristles on the, the broom. Bristles, indeed, the bristles indeed. on the broom. Got it you, was got made you. of broom corn, which is a a plant kind of like kind of like hay, sort of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he went down and he smelled something. Mm -hmm. And he thought, oh, my gosh, the broom corn's on fire. Now, uh, broom corn is like, hey, like I said, it goes up awful fast. So he runs back up the stairs, sounds the alarm, gets some water, screams for blankets, brings, and he and a couple of other blind guys put out the fire in the basement wow. and became heroes because That's this cool. was a wooden structure. You know, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't going to take long and they were all going to be toast. Uh, so those are how I find out about him. I find out about him through letters. I find utterly, out about him through the utterly annual fascinating, report. Utterly fascinating. Yeah. Loving this stuff. Uh, it's horrible. That's a horrible story, but it's incredibly interesting to me. But he yeah. died feeling complete. You know, I think that's the neat part about that story is he went to a broom shop where he earned his keep. He had money to spend to buy new clothes because uh, if you didn't have money to buy new clothes, let's take the the Industrial Home for the Blind in Iowa. Iowa was a progressive state for the education of blind people. Had The School for the Blind was started by Samuel Bacon, who was a blind guy from the Ohio School for the Blind, who started several schools for the blind. Uh, he's somebody that um, there's a lot out there about Samuel Bacon. I would encourage you to, to read about him. Uh, he started the Iowa School for the Blind. It became the Iowa College for the Blind. The alumni from that group were chiropractors, 
teachers, public school teachers, even in the 1880s and 90s. Um, they were the piano tuners. They were the businessmen. They owned their own stores, uh, music teachers. They started an alumni association, and one of the goals was to build a home for blind people who weren't quite as fortunate, where they could make brooms or uh, mops or what have you, and they would be able to um, fend for themselves. So they built the uh, industrial home for the blind, and it became, it was researched very well. There were some sex, successful industrial homes for the blind on the East Coast, and they used them as examples. But once it got built, the parties changed when the governor was um, elected, a different party. Uh, the director of the home for the blind was given to a political pal of the new governor. And who knew nothing about blindness? The people who went to this home for the blind, it was only open for about 10 years, found themselves in worse shape than when they went in to the point where the newspaper articles would plead for clothing so that so-and-so could go back home on the train. Uh, they didn't have shoes. Their clothes were worn out. <clears throat> the staff at the at the industrial home for the blind the director was paid $50 a month room and board and that meant room and board for his family he had uh two daughters his wife was uh paid $25 a month and her room and board where the blind people had to pay for their room and board out of what they <laughs> earned at the home, but they didn't always have stock for oh, the oh, farm funny, or the funny broom. how funny how that seems really un <laughs> that seems kind of unethical i don't know even from my perspective that's well that's not, partly why it was closed down yeah, because yeah, there were I, blind, I, was being, I was being sarcastic that's that's ridiculous there were literally and, blind people that owed the state money when they left the home for the blind um, okay, well, to then go I mean, back to their community. Well, okay, well, so the, in that, in that, and in that case study, that shows them that that home failed. If yes. You go, if it's a home where the person, and I'm not saying it was any good came of these types of organizations, any, any of these homes did any, any good really at, at all. I'm not saying it one way or the other. I'm not really saying that, but what I am saying is for the state then to set up a home for the blind, let's say, and then the blind person comes in and then they leave worse than when they started. Well, that shows that the home didn't work. So the, the whole right. economic model of that home wasn't set up right. And then, yeah. The blind people that worked hard to establish that home. Right. The school principal who also worked hard to establish that home, they did a lot to try and stop it after a few years when they realized what was going on. But it was now, after a few years, the director of the home he was now making $100 a month with room and board. <laughs> blind people who were married could not stay there. They, blind men and women could be there, but you could not marry. You couldn't, um, couldn't date. Otherwise, you would be kicked out of the home, even though the other sighted staff were married, but the blind people could not. 
um, for punishment. If they didn't have anything to do and they got ornery or they sassed back to the director or one of the staff, they were locked in closets. You're talking about adults in their 40s and they would be locked in closets for sometimes hours at a time. So they were, they, the answer is, so they were abused. So then yes. there was abuse. Yes. Uh, now, that is not to say that all homes for the blind were like that. There, were, there was a reason for those homes. And like I said, out on the East Coast, there were several that were successful for many, many years that did provide a living for people as well as a place to stay, even if they weren't as productive as some of the other people working in the shop. So we have a very, we have a very interesting history. And if we don't know our history, we are destined to repeat it. <laughs> We're destined to make those same mistakes. And I think that's another reason that we should know our own history from our point of view as blind people, that we are the ones telling our stories and we are the ones that are evaluating the data. And we are the ones that are saying when the data should be uh, concluded, not just at the end of when that person left the school for the blind or the industrial home for the blind, or uh, when they completed whatever uh, training program that they might have been able to gather. You know, for blind adults, there really was very, very little in this country until uh, almost the Second World War. There were some programs. The First World War did bring us a rehabilitation program. But I also think we should also look at where we stood as employment is concerned. We talk about the high unemployment rate of blind people in this country. And it is really sad. But do you know that in the 1910 census, there was a specific effort to find out what blind people were doing and how many blind people there were in this country? The, there is an entire document dedicated to the evaluation of that uh, one piece of census data. There were more than 60% of blind people who were considered to be self-supporting at that time. That means that they were not being supported by their families and they were not being supported by a charity, that they were not um, receiving any kind of local or, or state aid. There was no federal aid at that time at all. So these were people that were considered to be self-supporting. Now they did not live in the conditions that we would consider acceptable today. They may be living in sheds on someone's piece of property. Um, there were many blind people who were farmhands that lived in, as the sighted farmhands did at the time, lived in the barns of whoever they were working for. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily consider their living conditions to be idyllic, but they were self-supporting. When you look at today and we find that less than 30% are self-supporting, that many have government assistance programs of SSDI, SSI, what have you, or um, some other benefit or whatever, it is, how did that change? What made the difference? Now, granted, we have to look at the time that they lived in and what was acceptable for living conditions at the time. They're very different than they are today. Um, 
you could get by on some of that. We had a lot of blind people who became independent business people. Uh, they would run grocery stores out of their own home. Uh, they would run piano tuning businesses out of their own home. We mentioned earlier the job of piano tuning. One of the reasons many of the schools taught piano tuning is because there were several blind people who became successful piano tuners, and I mean very successful, wealthy piano tuners in Canada and in the United States. This was a job that blind people were accepted at and that they had a track record. So that's why the schools started teaching piano tuning. And depending on where you went to a school for the blind and learned your piano tuning varied on what they did teach you. There were schools for the blind that said a blind person couldn't tune an organ, that they couldn't do the repair, physical repair of the piano, the staining and so on, that a carpenter, you had to find a carpenter who would work with you. Yet there were other schools for the blind that taught young men, not women, because <clears throat> women couldn't carry the toolbox. That was one of the things they said. But they would teach them how to rebuild the piano. They would get these really gunky, beat up old pianos from wherever, get them donated to the schools, and the students would basically strip them and rebuild them from scratch and That's taught cool. them how to That's stain cool. at the school. And wow. there that were that's Classes. amazing. That's really that's that note alone. No, no pun intended. That note alone. That's fascinating. They would just teach you by saying, "Okay, I just destroyed this piano. Figure out how it works and put it together for me." That's well, really for most cool. of those pianos, they were destroyed when they got to the school. Yeah, well, there wasn't probably, much work to destroy it. Yeah. but these. But then they would have classes. Minnesota did. Iowa did for a while, where you took a class in how to build your business as a piano tuner. And in several of these letters to the governors from these biennial reports and so on, um, not a lot of them, a few of them, but they would say in their biennial reports or in some of the uh, letters from the principals of the School for the Blind, it's not that we think that all these kids can be piano tuners, but in our state, it is the profession that they are accepted at. So we teach them how to get their business started so that once they have become successful, they can move on to something that is more important to them, to be a stepping stone to something else, to be a, you know, for example, one guy went from a piano tuner to building furniture and had his own furniture store. Um, we've had a few piano tuners who have become state legislators, Several went to own their own piano businesses um, where they had a piano and music store, became the manager of the music store and had a lot of staff working for them as they built up their business. Um, but they taught them um, in one uh, report that I read, they were teaching them how to use a sighted guide. Because now remember, we, this is before cane travel was taught, before before we had what the dog guide um, official, although there were blind people who definitely used dogs um, before the dog guide schools were started. Uh, but they would tell them if you're using a sighted child, that's usually what you had as a kid who was 
you know, out of school, um, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old as your guide, that they were not to handle your money. You were to handle the money. That they were not to, to uh, precede you into a door. That they were to follow you into the door. That you were the one that needed to speak to the potential customer that your guide should be seen and not heard or as much as possible not even seen um, so that your potential customer realized you were in control. And in Minnesota, there was a gentleman, um, C.T. Gleason, who started out, well, he and his brother, he had a sighted brother. He and his brother, um, he had learned some piano tuning from out east. So he and his brother came to the Minnesota area territory and started um, a piano tuning business. He purchased his own store. And in the 19-teens, he made a deal with the School for the Blind in Faribault, Minnesota, that he would take these adults because this is this, pre, this predated their uh, summer program for blind men that started in the early 1920s. Um, he would teach these adult blind people, those who had could not go to the school for the blind because they were too old. He would teach them how to be piano tuners, and the school for the blind would pay him to do that. Um, that was kind of the precursor to their summer program. And he did that. He helped teach several blind people how to become piano tuners, and they would sleep in the back room of his store. Some of them, they were homeless. They didn't have any place to go. Uh, he'd take them in, and uh, they would work for him until they felt they could go out on their own, usually about six months to maybe a year and a half. Um, and he became a very good role model, but he became the support system for many of the piano tuners that lived in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area in the 19-teens. Your, your research um, is perfect, is absolute stellar, absolutely stellar. Um, I mean, I am someone, as I said, as we, as we walk towards ending this exciting episode to which I, I need to have you come back to this podcast. Uh, it's not really, it's not really an option. Sometimes I ask guests, do you want to come back to Aaron's opinion? But in this case, <laughs> you're telling this, me, huh? <laughs> in this case, I'm so, I'm so touched and I'm so inspired and I'm so interested with all the knowledge that you have to give my audience. I'm gonna have you come back and record several more episodes, several more installments because the world deserves uh, your knowledge and the, this information. This has been an absolutely fascinating episode. I have two more questions before we walk to a magnificent conclusion. Yeah, I haven't I, given you much time to ask questions. Yeah. That's because, that's because when, you're on my on, when you're on my show, I let you talk. I let you educate my audience. That's the beauty of podcasting. I let you record your book here and tell your story to the world. That's why it's beautiful, podcasting is. Yeah. But, um, well, okay, let's move to 2020. How are you spending your time now? You know, the research has slowed down. Um, yeah. Oh, why? There's, but but there's a, but 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 don't but, but don't you know we have a lot more technology. It's a lot easier for blind people to do research on blind people. And who <laughs> bothered to digitize our 
research. You. Who bothered to digit? I, actually, I am working on a project right now here in Colorado. Oh, to so, oh, so you're, you're, you're also, you're in, in addition to being a stellar researcher, you're, you're also very honest. You didn't want to take credit for work you didn't do. I greatly, greatly appreciate well, that. The, I am working on a project right now is I found a whole bunch of old records dating back to 1915 that are uh, minutes of the United Workers for the Blind of, of Colorado. Okay, that's amazing. That's beyond amazing. Okay, so um, coming up next on Aaron's opinion, I'm for sure going to ask you, Peggy, can, is there any way that you could include that, that audio in a future episode? Do you have the, that record? I would love to hear. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about the, 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 the minutes and it's not audio. No, sorry. Oh, not, not audio. You not mean, audio. You mean I am working notation. to, I am mm-hmm. working to get them transcribed and put into a format that blind people can read. I, well, um, I, 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 I support that uh, a, a thousand times over. This is but, you been... know, there's so much at the Library of Congress that we cannot get at right now because a lot of the libraries are just doing basic research and right, they aren't right. interested in my stuff. But if people well, are I interested am, in... If yeah, people go, are yeah, interested ahead, in following, okay. Yes, if, if people are interested in following <laughs> um, my emails, I have a monthly email list. Send me an email to theblindhistorylady at gmail dot com. Theblindhistorylady is all one word at gmail dot com. I send out a monthly email. This month was about the blind banker from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wow. Um, and uh, you know, I've talked about uh, a blind woman who had to fight child services during the second world war that's a problem even today by the way there's reports well she ended up living in an abandoned gas station um in order to just keep her family together um blind people have done tremendous things oh yeah and we need to know about them and we don't we don't have we are different from other minority groups or from family groups because we don't have that lineage we don't have that connection those records that we can easily get at um we don't have that grandmother who tells us every thanksgiving about how uncle henry always did that silly little thing on christmas eve that drove her nuts or that grandpa came over on the boat and he had to or the whole ship, the whole way across, which you know wasn't true, but hey, grandma always told that story, you know. Um, so we don't have that luxury of even ignoring those old family stories because we don't even have those old family stories to tell. And we are not the first person to do something like the blind banker. He died in the 1960s. Um, Incredible. So why, are, why don't we have presidents of banks who are blind? It's because they never knew about him. Um, I why? think I think that's I think that's a lot of it. I think that we didn't know. I didn't know. I'm blind. I'm a teacher. I I'm a I'm a podcaster and teacher at the same time. I you know I have a degree in inter- international studies. Um, I've traveled all over the world. I've never heard of any of this either, which is why this is so so special and why I thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you have done to make sure that the world deserves and has this knowledge. Really, really, really. You are always, I am sure that our friend, as I said before I turned on the microphone, I'm sure that he, I will be sending him this episode and he will be very pleased to hear this. Um, The person, uh, the, the, the person will love, will love to know that I included um, including you listened. You. you listened to a listener. See, there she is. <laughs> uh, 
and which is why that's a good that's a great segue to for me saying um that this was a very historic and for me absolutely magnificently fascinating episode with an absolutely fascinating guest um i'm so fascinated by you i promise you're coming on this podcast again um and you spoke so well I think next time, I think we're going to have to include you for a little bit longer, maybe two hours. I don't know. But but regardless, I'm going to give you a lot more time so that you can share your entire archive and all of your knowledge with the with Aaron's opinion and the blind people of the world. Because I'm, going to, I'm determined as a successful blind person and as a successful person of the world and an American, I'm determined to help you tell the truth and give the world knowledge. Um, and if you have comments about this episode, because gosh, that was really cool. That was really interesting. You're welcome to email me all of your questions, comments, concerns, and don't forget to tell me that I am a horrible person and deemed to hell. I would be more than happy to read that email. Or if you want to say, no, actually, Aaron, actually, you're a saint and, and you don't have to worry for the rest of your life. You don't have to work or anything like that. You're more than welcome to email me too. Aaron's opinion six <laughs> at gmail. By the way, Aaron's opinion six at gmail.com. By the way, I'm a very sarcastic person. I'm a little strange. I'm a character. Let me tell you, if you talk to me, you're going to be laughing. You're going to realize what a character I am. Um, I do, I do need to go. Um, let me just end the episode and I'll tell you one more thing off the microphone. You've been listening to Aaron's opinion, the podcast for blind people, where we had a very historic episode tonight from the blind history lady. I thoroughly enjoyed that one, guys. Hope you did. Have as I say on my podcast, say stay safe from around the world. And as I say, have a good day today and a great day tomorrow. From regular expenses to occasional splurges, there's a lot to buy. Why not get cash back every time you spend? With a PenFed Power Cash Rewards card, you get cash back on every purchase. That's everywhere, every time you use it. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Visit penfed.org slash powercash to apply. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. It's time for pumpkin flavors and new fall favorites at Dunkin'. And also some tough decisions. Like, do I want a signature pumpkin spice ice latte? A brand new oat milk latte? A new chai latte? Or a pumpkin iced coffee? Oh, and the bakery. Do I want a pumpkin donut or... Uh, there are other people behind you in this drive-thru. Oh, uh, I'll just take it all. Okay. It's all the cozy you crave at Dunkin'. Pumpkin favorites and new fall additions, like new creamy without the dairy oat milk lattes and the signature pumpkin spice ice latte, plus more. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.